Greetings, Alpha Seekers. Uh, welcome to the Sunday edition. Brought to you by your host, Terry Nugent. So, uh, Bears won today, which is good. It's amazing. A nice comeback. It was fitting the whole uh, Bear game thing into my overall despondent narrative. And then they came back and won. So... And it's amazing. I was walking along the street with Louie, uh, humming Bear Down. In fact, singing it out loud. Uh, so it's amazing how a Bears win can be a tonic, even in these uh, desperate times we find ourselves in. So anyway, that was good news. Uh, so it's a good Sunday. And on Sunday, I read the Chicago Tribune so you don't have to, instead of my usual reading of the, or watching of CNBC, so you don't have to. And I read it the old-fashioned way, because they uh, they continue to send it to me in print, even though I'd prefer probably they don't. So, <clears throat> but I, I actually like it. So, uh, today, I always try to improve my vocabulary, and the older I get, the fewer words... I don't know the meaning of, which is a purely constructed sentence. But today there was one, uh, Derecho, or Derecho, and it's a storm of some sort. Um, Somewhere in this article I'm kind of hoping they will tell us what it is. Uh, A Derecho or Derecho storm spawned 15 tornadoes. And this happened in August, you may recall. It was a very bad storm. And I did read some kind of a definition of what it is, but they didn't include it in this article, you know. Cut back on the editorial staff, so. Anyway, there's your new word for the day, and I'm not sure how you pronounce it, but you can look it up on Google and they'll tell you how to pronounce it. So, that's the only notable thing. Um, except for a page one story. So I got through to page nine before there was anything I wanted to share. And it talks about downtown being devastated. And it gives some metrics. Uh, Traffic is 62% of what it was last year um, in the downtown area, which they define as um, up to North Avenue on the north, uh, up to Ashland on the west, up to uh, the Stevenson on the south, and then, of course, the lake is the eastern border. Blackstone Group, they mentioned, paid $1.3 billion for the Willis Tower. It used to be Sears Tower. So, obviously, they're not the smartest. Even the smartest guys in the room are getting fooled here by this virus. And then they spent another $500 million on a renovation, and they added an indoor uh, mall. (laughs) So that's all a white elephant right now. Um, So there's a glut of office space downtown, which could drive down rents, obviously. North Michigan Avenue is a mess. Foot traffic's down between 60 and 70%. Whereas in the suburbs, Woodfield Mall is only down about 30%, and uh, Old Orchard only down 20%. 
20 to 37 percent. I don't know why they had that wide range. Uh, sales are down at the shops of Northbridge by 75 percent. Um, last year, one of the shop owners said there were so many tourists and locals. Now it's a completely empty street. So this particular business is considering whether to remain or not. And I think a lot of businesses are going to take a pass. So the occupancy rate for downtown apartments is well below 90%. Um, It was at 95% last year, so it's actually not down that bad. This for apartments. Uh, And there was one quote here. All the reasons for living downtown simply disappeared. Uh, People wanted to be close to work, dining, shopping, and entertainment, and all of a sudden those amenities are gone. Density used to be something that was really cherished, and now density has become scary. People are looking for wide-open spaces. Rents have only dropped about 4% in the newer luxury buildings, but they've dropped about 8% in the older buildings. But prices of condos so far have remained steady, and I think that's just because people aren't selling at the prices on offer. There's a big bid-ask spread. I know there's a big bid-ask spread on my house. Uh, So air travel obviously down, tourists down, convention attendees down. Passenger counts at O'Hara down 85% in June, 63% at Midway. Trade shows are scrapped. Uh, those shows expected to generate $2 billion in spending. That's gone. Palmer House foreclosed. Navy Pier closed. Uh, was 15% of its normal levels before they closed it for the fall and winter. Um uh, But construction is continuing to go. So uh, a modest uptick in parking because the people who are coming downtown aren't taking public transportation. A vaccine could create an eventual return to pre-pandemic downtown, but some companies are going to stick with at least the hybrid arrangement where people don't have to come into the office and waste their time commuting. So I think this is uh, an epochal change. I really do. It could be good for the suburban market. According to this, it could also be good for the mega projects on the fringes of downtown. I don't know why that would be. Like Lincoln Yards and the 78, whatever that is. Um, There's a history professor here that's quoted as saying, we stand in the possibility that we might have a reversal or a transformative effect that was entirely unpredictable or unforeseeable, I think is a better word, with all due respect to the professor, 20% of the bars and restaurants won't come back. They're gone. Going to need more federal aid and flexibility and regulations. You've taken a pandemic on top of an economic disaster greater than the Great Depression and then some civil unrest. No one could contemplate this a year ago. However, Chicago has survived worse, survived the fire. We're going to get through this, says one of the people that was interviewed in the article named Riley. Uh, And I don't know exactly who he is, but, you know, uh, it's bad. And it's going to take years to recover 
if it ever does. So, anyway, when they talk about the, uh, there's an article about the virus. So, the first patient popped up in, I think, in December, they say, the virus was already here. But I think the first patient here popped up in January, and they talk about that person. It was somebody who came back from China, so they talk about it in terms of the stigma and all that. Uh, then CDC announced on the 25th, and this is a interesting timeline in relation to this Woodward book. Uh, CDC announced on February 25th that the new coronavirus were almost certainly spread in the United States and urged schools and health facilities and businesses to prepare, whatever that means. Um, so this thing really didn't become a clear threat until then. And then in Illinois, and Illinois, I must say, I give JB credit, I think we handled it better than many states, and they're still handling it better than many states, but he didn't do the stay-at-home order until March 21, and then he did ease it in May, uh, which was later than a lot, but still, you know, this thing was here in December, it took until March for the governor of Illinois to realize that he needed to shut down the economy. That's not an easy thing to do, and it peaked here in May, so... um, the World Health Organization took until March 11th to declare it a worldwide pandemic, and I think that's 10 days later, uh, JB shut it down. So, yeah, there's plenty of, plenty of people, uh, there's plenty of blame to go around here, shall we say. Uh, and in the initial instance here in Illinois, they didn't see it. There's a quote here from a doc. We didn't see a widespread transmission or a large number of secondary cases from the first case. Uh, they did the contract tracing, and nobody caught it except the first uh, person who caught it was a woman, and her husband got it. And so it says here that everybody they tested on a follow-up didn't get it. So the severity of illness, they say, and the extent of viral shedding as well as the timing of exposure might all have contributed to the limited transmission described here, and that's from the Lancet. So it wasn't obvious, in the beginning at least, that this was going to be what it turned out to be. So let's keep that in mind. And what else is in here, if anything? Oh, well, and then in the event... Illinois had 250,000 positive cases so far, and of that, 8,000 deaths. So, certainly did become a problem, but initially, didn't seem to be. So, here's another corruption story, which is just kind of boilerplate. A Democratic state senator resigned. Third Democratic state senator to face federal criminal charges in just over a year and they got him on tax avoidance as they did Al Capone so um, Senate President Don Harmon who's a Democrat said he looks forward to welcoming and working with a new senator from Lake County so that was his 
strong statement about ethics. So, let us keep in mind that corruption is a bipartisan sport, especially in the state of Illinois. And also try to keep that in mind when you contemplate giving these guys more money to embezzle. Now, here's another uh, perspective piece about Chicago's survival. And this is by a guy I really respect a lot, Richard Longworth, who used to be a Tribune reporter and is now a distinguished fellow at the Chicago Council on Global Affairs. R.C. Longworth used to be his pen name, and he used to write on, you know, global, international, strategic stories. Really a smart guy. Uh, And he says that uh, we need to remain a global city. And, of course, the story of the city of Chicago is, as he puts it, the chasm between the globalized north side and the left-behind south and west sides is a perfect example uh, for many, the death of globalization would be good news indeed. So, um, the, w- the way the Chicago we know today came to be was the death of industrialization. And 40 years ago, he wrote a, a series, which I probably read, called City on the Brink, describing the civic impact of the departure of the mills and factories that kept the city alive for a century. Chicago, like many of its workers, had lost its job and had no way to pay the bills. And, you know, what happened is that the workforce that came here to work in those mills and factories, normally absent public assistance would have just gone away to find something else to do and find someplace else to do it. But instead, because of all the uh, subsidies from the federal and state governments and city governments, they were able to survive here um, without having jobs. And that's how we got where we are today. So when you start to try to shield the blow of reality, you create situations that are artificial. And I think that's the story of the city of Chicago. Uh, And he looks at the historical uh, perspective of globalization. He says, an early attempt at globalization in the late 19th and 20th centuries fell victim to the two world wars. It took 60 years to recover the degree of international integration that we knew in 1914, and it could be happening again, he says. Chicago today lives on global commerce. The law firms, markets, accounting firms, all the, all the knowledge workers really are plugged into the global economy, as are the universities, which have a lot of international students, and many of them are from China. Because they pay cash. They don't require loans and uh, subsidies and all that, tuition breaks. Chicago also thrives on business travel, meetings and conventions. Uh, If those travelers forsake air travel for Zoom, he says, O'Hare will become an empty white elephant. Um, It also relies on millions of tourists coming here to see the city. Uh, attending the concerts, seeing the sights, filling the museums, and spending their money. Well, how are they going to be expected to come here with the virus and the vandalism and the looting and, you know, the lack of public safety? That's the, that's tourist repellent. 
And if these meetings never come back, you know, that's $2 billion a year. It, the city relies on immigration, it says, which is actually, I think, a good point. We have a lot of people here, and I know some of them, who've come here from all over the world to work. Um, from investment banking to Uber drivers. And they have moved in, and they've rented apartments, and they spend their money here. Um, if they... Uh, if their jobs disappear and if they go back where they came from, as some of our more xenophobic uh, folks would like to see, then that diminishes the economy. You know, people think that's going to help. I actually don't. So um, so the conclusion he has is that uh, the cities should work together to address these issues, which I guess is what the blue state Democratic Party really is all about. And, uh, you know, on the other hand, what that says is that we're not going to try to bring those manufacturing jobs back. And a lot of people think that's an exercise in futility anyway. But that's really what this administration was trying to do, to make more money on tariffs and uh, lower taxes and as a result, bring back the manufacturing capacity uh, in order to be more self-reliant and put more people to work in good-paying jobs, which sounds like a Democratic Party ad. But uh, obviously, that message never got through to its intended beneficiaries. So um, I think the Democrats are probably going to return back to the globalization theme and and that may be the right way to go, but it, it certainly doesn't help the people who lost their jobs 50 and 60 years ago. You know, most of them are too old, but their kids are still, many of them, in the same boat in terms of being qualified for that, more so than the knowledge economy. So I don't know what's right or wrong, but I do think that uh, he puts forth a very uh, insightful analysis of the city and what happened to it and why it survived and why it's looking at a crisis that's on the same level as the crisis in the 60s and 70s. When we lost our industrial base, we may now lose our uh, knowledge economy base because uh, our knowledge economy base isn't really digital. It is and it isn't, but a lot of what we did here is more what we would call meat space versus bits and bites, you know. And then uh, the Trib also has an editorial about the downward spiral of Chicago. And uh, it says it's, again, city on the brink. So it refers to Longworth's piece. And uh, one anecdote struck me. They had a program on WGN Radio call-in, and one couple called in and said that they decided to head downtown uh, to an expensive steakhouse. They felt pretty good about it until the husband noticed someone standing at the entryway with a semi-automatic pistol. Um, it wasn't a patron or a protester. It was restaurant security. And... Uh, the wife said, we're not coming down here anymore. 
You know, because if you need guys pack and heat to defend your restaurant, that sends a bad vibe for the suburbanite. Um, and I think that's probably a trend you'll see more if businesses are convinced that uh, you can't count on the cops to defend your property, then they're going to employ their own security. So, you know, I don't know that I'd react that way. I'd probably be glad they had somebody. I mean, I can't go to restaurants anyway because it's hard to eat with a mask on. But um, in any event, so that is probably why newspapers aren't doing so well, in addition to online, because that's a pretty rough section one. (laughs) So then we got the section two, and uh, the Dakotas are having a problem now. Um, One thing that's interesting is that uh, 24% of the statewide North Dakota deaths are from Indian reservations. So uh, that's a remarkable statistic. But even if you break that out now, they're starting to have more of a problem their governor, Christy Noem, N-O-E-M, I don't think her party identification is here, but I imagine she's a Republican, so she doubts a broad consensus in the medical community that masks help prevent infections. So, because she says that they've mandated masking in Minnesota and active cases have actually risen since then. Um... So you can find whatever data you want, but I'm a big believer in masks. And in fact, if anybody needs one, just call me and let me know, and I'll send you one. 708-334-8414. So uh, United States has 64 million confirmed infections and over 193,000 deaths, according to Johns Hopkins. So we're going to go over 200,000. If we continue to have 1,000 deaths a day... For the rest of the year, we will obviously be close to or in the neighborhood of 300,000, which is terrible. Let's see. What else? Most of the rest of the paper didn't have anything, in fact. So then we get to the business section. And according to this, and this is kind of a hatchet job AP article, blaming the administration, of course, for there still not being enough N95s. Now, I can get them at my local Big Apple grocery store, but they are arguing that there's still a shortage. And uh, that's what the AMA says, actually. Uh, Susan Bailey, who I actually know, um, says that uh, in many ways things have only gotten worse in regard to the N95s. Now, I have a supply, and the American Hospital Association agrees N95s are still in a shortage. It's certainly not anywhere near pre-COVID levels. So um, you're only supposed to wear them for one day, but I wear them for much longer than that, and I'm still alive. So that's not much of a trial, but... Um, you know, I I just don't ever feel compelled to throw them away. But in any event, 
I do want to mention, from an Alpha Seeker perspective, there are four N95 manufacturers. One is called O&M Halyard. Honeywell's another one, 3M's a third, and then Hollingsworth and Bose, V-O-S-E. So, you know, Honeywell and 3M are so big, it probably doesn't make that much difference. They got a total of $135 million from the feds to increase production. Now, what this article argues is that the Trump administration has failed because it's not guaranteeing a steady future supply of orders, uh, which... You know, if I were in charge, I would do that. So, I mean, these guys print money, so why not guarantee them a 10-year so they can, you know, they got to invest in plant and equipment. So I would guarantee them that. And uh, I think that's a legitimate criticism of the administration. The other thing that they're uh, protesting is that the federal government allowed domestic manufacturers of the raw material, which is melt-blown material. It's a melt-blown fabric, I guess. Uh, they've allowed it to be exported, and 40% of it went to Pakistan, of all places. I don't know why. Uh, and there's a National Association of the Non-Woven Fabrics Industry, by the way. So the reason I'm calling that out is that um, I don't know if those smaller companies were are publicly traded, but that's something I'm going to probably look into because obviously it's a bull market for N95s. And this story is part of an ongoing investigation by AP, PBS, Frontline, and Global Reporting Center that examines the deadly consequences of the fragmented worldwide medical supply chain. You know, and that gets to the point that if they're sending that stuff to Pakistan, it may well be they're making masks over there and sending them back here. Uh, or maybe it ends up in China. I don't know. That's a good possibility, actually, because the Chinese have a port over there, and it may be more politically correct to send it to Pakistan instead of China. But, uh, you know, that's trade. And if they weren't going to let anybody do it, the Trump administration would probably be criticized for greedily hoarding all the masks and not saving the rest of the world. Although when people start getting sick and dying here, all of a sudden we get a lot less altruistic, if you've noticed. So, um, you know, <clears throat> this is what it is. But um, there may be some alpha-seeking opportunities with those companies. I don't know. I haven't looked them up yet, but... I pass it along to you. So, uh, what else is in the trib here today? And that's about it. So, you know, I read the whole Tribune, so you didn't have to. And you're welcome. Okay? So, uh, let me just see. I've got a lot, bunch of material here, but, um, you know... One thing I heard on CNBC, which I watched so you don't have to, um, there was one uh, talking head on CNBC, and I didn't make a note of his name, but he recommended IBB. That's uh, Idaho Baker Baker, or Bravo Bravo. And that's one of the uh, NASDAQ biotech indexes. Uh, so 
that has become undervalued, I think, with the big sell-off, or at least more of a buy than it used to be. And uh, so think about that. That's something that we uh, are had thought about making the the base position in our biotech portfolio adventures next. Uh, so I don't know, maybe an entry point for us there. So those are two that I'm not throwing away as I throw away my Tribune clips. They're, they having served their purpose, which is to uh, do this podcast. And I think I've probably rattled on for longer than your attention span can handle. So I think I'll save the rest of my voluminous material for another day on another podcast. So, uh, again, I want to remind you that we've got our 10-10-10 offer going at Ventures Next. That's a 10-month um, loan for 10% interest, and we're looking to get a minimum investment of ten grand. but we're flexible on that. And it's backed by the full faith and credit of yours truly and my partner. Uh, both of us have the wherewithal to uh, make sure we pay you back with interest. And it's the, pr- the reason we're raising these funds is that we incurred some high interest debt during the uh, big crash so we could allow our investment portfolio to recover, which it has. And so that debt has served its purpose, and we want to retire that while still leaving our cash uh, powder dry, as it were, for further investment uh, gains, we hope. So uh, if anyone is interested in that, give me a call at 708-334-8414. And it's an awfully good return rate, you know. And uh, we will make sure that you don't have any principal risk. So uh, looking forward to discussing that with any interested parties. Meanwhile, live long, prosper, stay safe. And uh, we will talk to you again, uh, maybe even as soon as tomorrow. Bye-bye.